All right, we're going to get into our message today. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, going to be looking at verses just 3 through 5. So last week we just covered two verses. This week we're just looking at three. So we're picking up pace a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, if you brought your Bible, if it's on your phone or um, even old school, actual old print Bible, you can open up there as well. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses uh, 3 to 5. I'm reading from the NIV translation. It says this. Praise be to God to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. I want us to imagine uh, this morning that we are Dwight Schrute. Half of the room's not gonna know who that is. He is a fictional character in the the TV series called The Office. So if you're over, I don't know what age, let's say 50, you probably haven't seen it. If you're probably 20 to 45-ish, you've probably seen uh, the show. But he's just kind of this uh, dorky, geeky character. He's very lovable and sometimes drives you nuts at the same time. If you've got a brown suit in your closet or a mustard button-up shirt, you are probably similar to Dwight Schrute, okay? Anyways, um, he's just this quirky character in the show. But... uh, Pretend for a moment that you're Dwight, okay? Or just yourself, that's fine. You don't have to, if you don't know Dwight, just pretend that you're yourself, okay? But one day uh, at your job in the office, you get uh, a fax. And on that fax is a message from future Dwight. Or future self, okay? Future version of yourself. And on that fax, it's a letter to yourself from your future self saying, next week, you're going to hear from your doctor that you have prostate cancer. Your doctor will tell you that it has progressed to the point that you only have six months to live. Now, don't sell the beet farm to your cousin Mose. Now, if you only watch The Office, then you're only going to get that one, okay? And don't use the proceeds from the sale of the farm to waste it on paintball or wild living like I did. For two weeks after that diagnosis, you will get another notification from your doctor saying that there was a mix-up at the lab and you do not have cancer. More information to follow. Cordially yours, future Dwight. That's what it would say. Imagine you're Dwight, or you're yourself, okay, and you get that fax. How might that change your response to that doctor's appointment coming up when your doctor tells you that you have prostate cancer? You would live and you would respond differently because of what you now know about your future. And you know that a few weeks after that, you get another call from that same doctor saying, whoa, I made a mistake, sorry. There's a mix-up at the lab, you're actually okay, all right? 
you would respond differently, you would live differently, based on what you know about your future. And if this concept is new to you, welcome to Christian living. Welcome to Christian living, welcome to a life of faith according to the Apostle Peter. Today we dive into the beginning of his opening of this letter. This part as well as the rest of his opening become the foundation for all that follows and is built upon in the development of his letter to the people of God, to the church. But we also need to know some specific things, or it's extra helpful to know the setting of Peter's audience. Who's actually receiving uh, this letter and why they are receiving it? In order for us today in Canada in 2022 to better understand with greater clarity and meaning what Peter is saying. Peter is writing to a letter to Christians who are living in a reality where following Jesus puts you at odds with the world around you. Living in a culture where following Jesus puts you at odds, at a disadvantage from a, a social level or an economic level and many other political level, every level, puts you at odds with the world around you. And furthermore, for Peter's recipients of this letter, for his audience, there are no indicators or signs of immediate relief to the realities that they are facing right now. For every cultural and normal indicator in life points to things actually getting worse for Christ followers. Many scholars studying this letter and scripture in general estimate that Peter wrote this letter around the middle of Emperor Nero's reign, who actually would go down in history, Emperor Nero, as blaming Christians for everything that went wrong in the world. Christians became an easy scapegoat for society's problems. You know, it was those Christians that stopped buying idols in Ephesus and other cities that caused whole markets and economies to crash because they were no longer buying the little trinkets and silver idols and things like that, that uh, much the economy and uh, the norm and the comfort level of society was based on. Christians didn't bow to the emperor as Lord. They didn't say, Caesar is Lord. They, they, They didn't do that. They wouldn't say that. They wouldn't bend their knee. To worship him. There were also rumors that Christians were cannibals because they drank Christ's blood and ate his body in the practice of communion whenever they gathered. And obviously that was weird to them and wrong. Christians subscribed to a sexual ethic that was very narrow, that defined marriage as. Uh, husband and wife in a covenant relationship, male and female, and anything outside of that was sinful. Christians uh, were, Christian husbands were encouraged to actually serve their wife, not to lord their power and place or strength over them, but to use, to humble themselves and to serve their wife. That, that was was not the norm, not the appropriate way back then. 
Christians were expected to treat slaves as equals. That was not normal. And so uh, for Nero, Christians became the very convenient, easy scapegoat because they already weren't really liked or fully understood by their neighbors, and uh, it just became the, the, the way that he would kind of blame uh, societal problems. And uh, instead of pointing to other things or to, to himself even, he would blame Christians. And so Nero would actually crucify Christians, he also uh, would feed Christians to the wild animals in the arenas for sport, for entertainment. Uh, he would also burn, hang them on a pole and burn them alive to be lanterns in the city and in the palace at night. Many Christians, many, sorry, many scholars actually believe that Peter was actually writing this letter to Christians, to the specific Christians actually that were kicked out of Rome. There's a huge fire uh, in, in Rome, burnt nearly two-thirds of the city, and what did Nero do? He blamed Christians. And so he's like, those Christians, that's the last straw. We're kicking them out of here. And many of them were exiled to modern-day Turkey where these Christians uh, were gathered. They were indeed strangers in the land exiled from their home. Can you imagine today if Trudeau blamed last fall's floods and today's high gas prices on Christians and forced every Christian in BC to move to northern Manitoba? No offense if you're from there or moving there or like life there, that's good for you. Just a theoretical example. Can you imagine if you forced all the Christians in BC to move to Manitoba and, and your house that you've slaved, your life, you know, paying off the mortgage or your business that you've poured your blood, sweat, and tears into all of a sudden is just given over to the state and auctioned off to the highest bidder, your life savings depleted, maybe family members or friends that you know have been burned alive, lighting up the parliament grounds, and now you find yourself in a new city with nothing. You're a nuisance to all of your new neighbors. Maybe you or a loved one due to your poverty has been sold into slavery. No wonder the church community back then bound together so tightly. And then, you know, a few months into all of this, or maybe even a year into all of this, you get a letter from Peter back in Rome, and he writes things like, like what we'll get into actually in the next chapter, in chapter 2. He writes this, 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 to 17, submit yourselves to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Where does someone find the strength and the motive or the love to live like that in light of such harsh 
and hostile and just terrible conditions? Well, it's why Peter opens up uh, his letter in the way that he does. For the good news of Jesus teaches us that even in life's darkest chapters, even the circumstances or the situations or the pressures that you face are hard or unbearable. They have no chance of darkening the joy and the hope that is ours whose faith is in Jesus. This is what he begins to write about. To reveal to them, to remind them, to inspire and strengthen and motivate them to live as faithful followers of Christ. Last week, Peter reminded us in his greeting of who we are in Christ, and we learned that we are chosen by God. We are the byproduct of the Spirit's faithful work unto us, leading us, empowering, enabling us to give our yes to Jesus, to give our obedience to him, which renders us grateful recipients of his forgiveness. We are sprinkled by his blood, we read in a text last week. We are a part of his family, part of the people of God. Last week's greeting opens the door to our text today, and it begins as a response of praise for all that God has done through Christ for us. Verse 3 begins by saying, in his great mercy... Note that that's in direct contrast to the world's belief that most of us are good people deserving of heaven. You take a poll of even Christians in most churches in the West, you take a poll of most people in society on the topic of heaven and hell, and we always just kind of figure, at least if I'm not like Hitler, then I'm, ex- I'm okay. God will accept me and I will be welcomed into heaven because I'm good enough. And Paul reminds the people of God that you aren't good enough. You weren't good enough for God. That's why he begins with this statement, in his great mercy. Peter reminds us of our reality of where they were and where they are, and hopefully for us today, where we were and where we are today in light of God, in light of Christ, in light of faith. We were born an enemy of God, given to our own leadership and our own wisdom. We live selfish, controlling, abusing, gossiping, greedy, vain, immoral lives. And the list goes on. Standing before a holy God, there is none that are righteous, none that are deserving or good enough by God's standard to meet the bar of who he made us to be. We all fall short. We all are guilty. We all are in need of mercy. Like the old hymn states, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A life of faith is a life of gratitude and a life of praise for the mercy of God who would take a prodigal runaway like me when I took the life that God gave me and spent it on sinful living, hurting his other children, 
wasting his investment, and yet he would welcome me home, pay my debts, adopt and restore me as his child with full privileges therein. Through that turning of heart, that coming back to him, that believing us to be sinful and him to be good, we are born again, the scripture describes it as. We become a new creation whose life and whose future are found in Jesus who died for me and beat death that I might live. Our hope, we read in this text, is a living hope because it's attached to the one who is living, who is resurrected. We of all people, in light of his forgiveness, his death, and in light and what it did for us, in light of his resurrection and his living presence, we have the most to be grateful for and the most to be hopeful for. While our neighbors might hope for a good prime minister, our neighbors might hope for good health, a good marriage, good kids, a good job, all of which can be taken in an instant. Our hope by comparison, this, the text reads, will never perish, never spoil or fade, and will never be taken from us and given to somebody else in our place like there's limited space. Peter uses the word inheritance to describe what is awaiting for those who put their faith in Christ. We are the people that would trade a hundred years of perfect health, a hundred years of fame, a hundred years of fortune, power, sex, smarts, good looks, all of the fun and fleeting and wonderful things in creation that can be ours and sometimes are. We would trade all of those things in perfect condition for, you know, if, we, if given that opportunity for of a, a perfect life. <laughs> We would trade all of that in just a second. And the, the, it wouldn't even be a decision for the people of God if we had to choose between that and eternity with Christ. And yet, we often get so jealous when someone comes into money. Or they, they seem to work less than us, and yet they get all the breaks in life. We become jealous of them. Or somebody has a, a better marriage. Or we get so discouraged when our health declines. When we get that real diagnosis from a doctor. Or we get bitter when people don't treat us well. Or we get upset when the government does something that we don't like. Or we get angry or we get depressed when life doesn't go the way that we want. Meanwhile, we are the people that don't fear death. We are the people who will stand before our maker and hear the words, well done. We are the people who daily grow in the grace and peace of our Lord. We are the people who understand what this life is really all about. We are the people that define success on a completely different level than our world. 
And maybe that sounds arrogant, but it's backed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What other claim in this world, what other promise or foundation that you could build a life on and place your hope in, even if just for this short life, is backed by that kind of love and that kind of power? Nothing. Our hope is certain because our faith is in him. Not in our own ability or our own righteousness or holiness, but in his given to us as a gift simply by faith in him. Our one job is to keep the faith. And not faith in ourselves, but faith in him to know that he is faithful. Verse 5 says this, that we are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Faith is the act of holding on to that reality. Going back to the example of future Dwight and the facts. You go to the doctor's appointment, you get this diagnosis. Faith is holding on to that reality that what your future self said to you is actually true and not what the doctors have said to you. Hebrews 11.1 1 reminds us of this. It defines faith as faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. I remember the first time that I heard the statement. It, it really opened my eyes and, and um, impacted me greatly. Uh, the statement went like this. How we live our life in the present is the product of what we ultimately believe about our future. The decisions that we make, the way that we interpret our emotions and our circumstances, and ultimately whether we go left or right, or whether this is right or wrong, or what I should do or shouldn't do, or what I'm gonna set as my goals in life, or how I'm gonna define whether I'm a success or a failure, our, our present decisions in life are truly and ultimately made by what we believe about our future. If what we've been promised by Christ is as good as he says it is, then every day we are closer to death is a day that we are growing with excitement as we are yet one day closer to our living hope being realized and remaining for all of eternity. And that kind of hope and that kind of vision, that life of faith, is what strengthens and renews and motivates people to love even in the darkest of circumstances. Or simply persevering, going the distance through a long and maybe sometimes really hard life. When the world is upside down, when our life is in the pits, when people don't like us, we have a hope that is living in us. A hope that is certain, a hope that is guaranteed, a hope that is guarded by God. And one day, 
that hope will be realized in Christ's timing and his way. That hope is better than any relief or any reward this world could offer us. And it is held secure by God's word and his power. All we must do is believe that he is that good and he is that strong. And he did on the cross all that we needed to actually truly believe that he actually is that good and that strong. When he voluntarily went up on that cross and was nailed to it for our sins, and when he rose from the grave, he proved to us once and for all that he is that good and he is that strong. Sometimes we meet Christians here and there that are so depressed about getting old. Sometimes we are those Christians. When if the hope of heaven was alive and active by our faith in him, every day we get closer to the grave, our hearts should only be increasing with a burning desire to receive the hope that we have in Christ. Sometimes Christians hope that Jesus doesn't return until we get to a certain level in life or we have some kind of, we're waiting for some kind of earthly experience to enjoy it. We've been working hard for it and we want to, Jesus, just hold off. The kitchen reno is going to be done in two weeks. I just want to see it. I want to enjoy it before you come. Can you just hold off on your return? Or, Lord, I, I just got one more year and then I'm going to get this promotion. Or one more year and I'm going to get retirement. And I've been working my whole life for retirement. And uh, I, I, I just, just don't return yet because I want to do 20 years of golf before you return. Or I think of the groom on the, uh, on the day of his wedding, you know, praying, Lord, don't, don't return tonight. Just, just wait a week, please. Can you see the, the futility or the silliness of that? Pushing away the return of Christ in exchange for some silly little temporary treasure or pleasure in this life? This is what Peter is awakening his audience as readers to. And then once in a while you meet some of those Christians that get it. And it's amazing. They are so heavenly minded that they are of such earthly good. They aren't worried about this life and trying to get the most out of it for themselves. And so they are simply free to be present and to give and to serve and to love and to care for those around them purely and truly out of their love for God and their love for one another. Obviously, Jesus modeled this kind of living perfectly. And once in a while, we are privileged to meet and to uh, commune with or, or connect with people who get it like that. And when you come across those kinds of people, you truly do leave 
inspired. And I hope that one day I become like that. I hope that our church becomes a community filled with people like that. So heavenly minded that we aren't in it just to get what is ours or what is due us. And we aren't so worried and busy and occupied with our future that we are robbed of the present, that we are simply present, simply at peace in our own skin before God and before others, simply filled with love for God and all his creatures. I think it takes practice. I think it takes a decision of the will to believe that, to make a, a, a claim or a stand there and to build your life on the reality of the hope of heaven. A decision to live for heaven and to let go of this life. A decision to see where Jesus is in your day and in your family and in your, rela- in your relationships and to live as he leads you, to live as he lives. A decision is needed to walk in his presence, led by his spirit in this life, to keep our eyes fixed on him and the hope that we have in him and to not be distracted by the trappings or the worries of this world. What would be different about your life today if your focus was more on your eternal inheritance and less on your earthly worries or pursuits? What would be different about your life today? What about the people that you live with or encounter or at work or in school or in your neighborhood? How, how would they receive you or be impacted by you differently than before because of your focus shifting from your own life and your own worries and your own struggles and your own pursuit of getting what's yours in this life to having your hope fixed on heaven? How, how would that change your life and those around you? Would you spend your time differently? Would you spend your money differently? Would you invest yourself in this world differently? Would you be more present and more loving? Would you be more generous and peacemaking? Let's pray. The music team can come up. Lord, as we just take a moment here and uh, pause to reflect on uh, your word given to us through Peter, even now may our hearts and our minds and our lives be open to be changed, informed, inspired, corrected, guided by you here today. Lord, give us eyes to see what is in store for us when we put our faith in you. Fill us with such delight over what you've done and what's to come that the things of this world become mere instruments to display the joy and hope we have in you. Today, Lord, awaken us, stir us, fill us, 
put a fire in her heart that burns for you. And Lord, burn away the world's grip on us and burn away our grip on the world that we might be free to love you and others as Jesus does. Lord, let us burn for heaven. Help us today, help us this week. In your name we pray, amen.